Hey guys, with transition of powers in the beginning phases, now more than ever, our country and our communities need to take seriously the art and ability to have respectful and heartfelt dialogue. In an effort to take the first step within our own circles towards such conversations, we brought on two left-leaning friends of ours for what turned into a beautiful discussion and, at moments, debate. We hope this episode encourages you to lean into the tough conversations with love and respect, putting aside insults, virtue signaling, and the dangers of cancel culture. Because, let's be real folks, that was so 2020. Welcome to Unraveled Podcast. I'm Bridget. And I'm Mackenzie. This is the place where we unravel all the things on our hearts. Laughter, tears, and real talk are all invited. Here we go. Hi, you guys. Hi. Hello. So this is our first time doing a four-person interview, I guess, or episode, rather. We will be interviewing Adam and Shelby on why they voted the way they do. So this is featuring two of our very dear friends who lean a little towards the left, and Bridget and I obviously lean towards the right. So without further ado, our first guest is Shelby Bowden. I have known her since I think I was seven and she was five years old. And I first saw her tearing up the soccer fields. She played with my sister. And also her mother is one of my mom's bestest friends in the entire world, even though they are on two totally different sides of the spectrum when it comes to politics. Shout out to Trisha (laughs) and Eileen. So until recently, Shelby has been a student her entire life, and she considers it a privilege and hopes to remain a student of life and stay constantly curious and seeking further understanding and truth. In her final year of law school, she had the incredible opportunity to be a member of the Civil Rights Clinic, and this focus of the clinic was grounded in juvenile justice reform in Washington State and around the United States. She is currently practicing a practicing attorney in Seattle, Washington, and is most proud of where she came from, Fort Collins, Colorado, woohoo, and two of the most amazing parents who raised two daughters to be true to themselves in their convictions, but most importantly, to be kind and decent people. So welcome, Shelby. Thank you. Welcome, Shelby. Also with us is Adam Johnson, who is a lieutenant in the Supply Corps um, at the Program Executive Office for for Aircraft Carriers. He also, this is super cool, is the founder of NJOC, Naval Junior Officer Council, which is a self-organized group within the Navy, bridging the gap by vocalizing the junior perspective to inform strategic decision-making within the Navy. Great. So guys, we have a super serious first question for you both. Um, if you had to name a movie about 2020, what would the title be? Adam, go first. Oh, so if it was an independent film, I would say uh, our trash cans are full of wine bottles. <laughs> Oh, that's good. Love that. Shelby? The Awakening. Ooh. Ooh, I like that. That sounds like like kind of a horror film slash like... <laughs> go both ways. <laughs> mm-hmm. Bridge, what would you say? I was going to say Shit Show, but like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't have an alternative title. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, I love Awakening, but I mean, over here, it was definitely somewhat of a shit show. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Movie title is Winter is Coming. (laughs) If you guys get Game of Thrones, okay? That's amazing. Oh, my gosh. I love it. Hey, guys. Have you thought about your Christmas shopping yet? Well... 
This week, our favorite online shop for all things beautiful, The Catholic Company, is offering our listeners 15% off their purchase. The Catholic Company is a one-stop shop for meaningful gifts for you or a friend, from gorgeous home decor or religious art to Catholic lifestyle apparel, holy medals, and much more. Let's just say I could easily spend my entire paycheck there in one click. I loved the Magnificat cover you surprised me with, V. And my very favorite St. T. Rosary is from them. The way I see it, if you want a holy house, fill it with holy things. Use the code UNRAVELEDPODCAST at checkout. Okay, so let's get right into it, you guys. Who did you vote for and why? And if you want to get into topics, which I think we do, maybe let's say a couple non-negotiables for each of you. So, Shelby, you start. Um, I voted for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Um, honestly, this might surprise you, but I'm not a registered Democrat. I'm an independent because um, I don't really feel that either party represents my ideals or what I feel is most important. Um, For me, I voted for what I felt I was voting for human kindness and decency above all else. Um, This time around, a couple of my non-negotiables are climate change, um, healthcare, as we're in in the midst of an international pandemic, um, and what is happening at the border and obviously the, um, Black Lives Matter movement. Okay. Thank you for sharing. How about you, Adam? So I also voted for the Biden administration. Um, and I will, hopefully this doesn't uh, disappoint. Um, I don't have non-negotiables from a political sense. I have uh, non-negotiables personally, but I do believe that um, God gives us the ability to make our own decisions. And uh, from a pragmatic sense, I voted for the Biden administration first and foremost because the Trump administration has provided us with the most positive scrutiny for the presidency that I've seen as an adult and possibly in my lifetime and maybe in the history of this country. You can see it by the voter turnout. And what better time to have equal scrutiny positively applied to the Democratic Party, right? If we're going to, um, you know, in some cases, judge the decisions, I think it's only right that we turn around and use that same energy to, you know, put a positive fire under the Biden administration, under the Democratic Party, and see what works and what doesn't work, uh, if that makes sense. I think too, um, just to jump in really quick, uh, because previously Adam and I have had um, some really productive discussions on it. Um, I think one thing that you said that was really interesting to me was that you uh, look forward to if Joe Biden is, you know, elected um, in December when they decide, um, like having setting that bar high and hoping that they rise to the occasion, you know, um, which a lot of times we have all these anxieties around who's elected. Oh, they're like the world is over. So-and-so is elected or, or the world is going to change and be the best thing ever because so-and-so is elected. Um, and so I think it's interesting to, to let things play out and see where the chips fall 
but also to to have a high standard for these individuals that are going to hold the highest office in the land. Um, we've seen we've seen some positive things happen in the Trump administration for for sure in the last four years. But have there been disappointments? Absolutely. I don't I don't know too many Republicans who are like Trump embodies everything I want to be in life. Um, I mean, I'm sure they're out there, but um, for me, <laughs> for me, um, he just seemed like the better of the two options for in terms of what I stand for. But is he a perfect man? Absolutely not. So it, it's hard to find that perfect um, candidate. I don't even know if that exists. Yeah, I I get I completely agree with what you're saying, Bridge, and same with what you said, Shelby, about kindness and decency I can totally get behind that I I can we need we need all of those people leading this country right now for me if I feel like if we have an opportunity to vote for a candidate one of my non-negotiables obviously infanticide like and fight for the right of the unborn and I think that's what Christ and the church that we belong to asks us to do now for me, that's not all there is to it, though. Like the law side, as Christians, it's to bring our neighbors into a, a relationship with Jesus. So I believe personally, if you know Jesus, then you know that abortion is wrong. And I don't think anyone wants an, anyone to have one. So the danger with protecting pro-choice law is that it, it just like implicitly communicates that it's morally acceptable. And it incentivizes companies like Planned Parenthood to structure their business model around it. So that's where I start and I have to go from there. So I, I'm personally voting on policy um, over, I guess, how Trump maybe is as a person. I know his Twitter is awful and maybe I wouldn't want my kids to hang out with him, but I have to vote on policy. So that's what it is for me. I agree with that. I don't think I would ever um, have a wine night with Trump, but um, do I agree with a lot of the things that he pushed? Um, I do. Um, and, you know, it's funny because a lot of people say he's the worst human being ever. Oh my gosh, thank God he's out. And, and a lot of times when you, then when you continue the conversation, sometimes it is hard to come up with specifics as to what he has done during his administration. Certainly he said some really bad things in his past that we all know. He said, grab them by whatever, you know, all of those really crude things that he has been caught saying. Um, but all of these folks, unfortunately, have lots of skeletons in their closet. Joe Biden, many skeletons. Kamala, many skeletons. I'm pretty sure the person she's married to, she cheated with. So, um, you know, I'm not saying uh, that's not a place of judgment. I'm just saying I think it's important that we all look at these folks as flawed human beings. We're all flawed human beings. So, you know, I think the biggest schism, the funny part about the, the polarization happening right now is we're acting like one side is this like savior and the other side is not. When really, if we look at these individuals, they, they all are flawed. So it, may, it makes you think, you know, like, what are we holding to such a high standard. But yeah, I love all those answers. Ken's and I have known each other for the better part of our entire lives. And um, her mom was my Sunday school teacher. And there was a point where me and my family were practicing Catholics. And um, I have a complicated 
relationship with with Catholicism and that can be a different conversation. Um, but my point is my background in knowing Mackenzie and the Van Mebrans and even what I've gotten to know um, of her husband, Colin, they are just the kindest, um, most generous, most decent people. And, um, you know, when I went off to college, Eileen, Mackenzie's mom, provided me with a rosary and I still have it, you know, and um, because I know she gave it to me out of love and I know that they pray for me and I just had to really rack my brain about how these amazingly kind people could vote for someone that conducts themselves in the way that Donald Trump does because it just I'm like if anything this is the antithesis of what the Van Meverins are about and how they treat other people um so that's what I said to Mackenzie was you know I'm looking forward to having this conversation because I'm just you know I couldn't figure it out very nice of you I just want to point out that many I feel like first of all the Bowdens are the same way I think Trisha is the most generous she's like a second mother to me and so I feel the same way about her family and I think there are so many decent and kind and generous people in this country and I think it's easy to call names and um, blame it you know look at one guy and think he's the destroyer or the evil you know and but if we get to the topic and like like each individual reason why we vote the way we do there's some hope and light there the next thing we kind of wanted to get into and it kind of is a good spinoff to Shelby um what you described is the thought that a lot of people share about Trump so that that is not really a surprise to us that you would wonder that or want to know more about that um so it kind of goes into the next thing we want to talk about which is despite the polls that projected Biden to win by a landslide 72 million Americans, which is almost half, voted for Trump, half of the voting population, that is. So what, I guess, um, what do you guys make of this? Um, If he is, you know, if he is this, like, vilified human being, we all know, of course, he's not perfect. We've already been through this. All four candidates are not perfect in their own ways. Um, So if he, if he is this terrible, I guess the question is, then why did so many people come out to vote for him? And if you guys could kind of elaborate for us, because we do truly want to understand, like, what, if you have a list of kind of things in your mind of, like, what has been so hard to um, accept him, if you could share that with us, just so we could grow deeper in our understanding, either either one of you. Um, I think that neither party really speaks to a lot of Americans. And um, I feel like a lot of the time, we are voting with like holding our nose almost. You're not really excited to vote for someone, but you're like, oh, well, they're better than the other person. Um, And I think that's a real problem in American politics. Um, You know, you should believe in the person you're voting for and you should hold the people that are that are holding the position of the highest office in the United States to a a high, the highest of standards. Um, Because they don't just represent Republicans and they don't just represent Democrats. They represent all Americans. And 
um, something's missing because a lot of people feel unheard and a lot of people feel unseen by either party. Um, my, I guess, Bridget, to answer your question of, you know, why was I surprised was to me in conversations that I've had with family members who were lifelong Republicans and for the first time ever voted for a Democrat was this time around. Um, and they just said, it's, um, it's too much. It's not normal to speak about um, white supremacists with any type of kindness. Um, like with what happened with Charlottesville and he said, there's very fine people on both sides. And um, in the previous debates, he had a moment, was asked outright to completely disavow white supremacy. And he didn't say, I disavow white supremacy. He said, I'll do what the people want me to. Uh, I'm not sure he said that. Um, I don't think he said that, actually. Um, and there is, though, just to quickly jump in, they, they did like a the next day, there was a video reel of like 20 times of, of Donald Trump saying, I disavow white supremacy, I disavow it. But the media has, has absolutely painted him as, as a racist. And so um, I think by the time he got to that debate, he was so done with saying that that of course all Republicans watched that moment and were like, are you for real? Like, just do it. Like you're on camera. This is the moment like flat. We know that you don't agree, but flat out say it. And he is so obstinate, which is definitely his character flaw that he wouldn't say it. Um, but certainly if you followed any sort of, um, uh, I mean, that he had the highest turnout for minorities he of a Republican highest, candidate. He had the second period. highest turnout of any person up for the presidency besides Joe Biden. I'm not disputing that, you know, like that's yeah. so lots of blacks have voted for for Trump. I mean, so I, I think that we have to like Mackenzie actually said it in our last episode. And I thought that that was really compelling what she said. She said um, the word racism is now being um, called. Um, what did you say? You compared it to like. I feel like the word the word racism is now like calling somebody mean. Yes, I feel like it's just become so cheapened, and which is scary. Yeah. And I will just say, as someone um, who has very a few very close friends of color, um, who are black women in the United States of America, that they do not feel safe in Trump's America, um, in speaking to the 70 plus million people, I think a lot of us who, me, including myself, a white woman need to sit with some uncomfortable feelings and uncomfortable truths about our country's history and the presence of systemic racism and how it affects and perpetuates people today and how we benefit from it even implicitly, we don't even have to know that it's happening and it's not intentional, but it still exists. And it does disproportionately affect people of color and minorities. I agree with you, Shelby. And then I want to hear Adam that racism is wrong. And I do agree that in situations it still happens. And I also think 
I don't want to downplay it at all. Um, I do think a lot of bad things happen in general, just bad things, bad behavior, bad people exist. Me personally, I don't believe it's a systemic problem because there are no laws in place saying people of color can't do this. That's, that's what I think. Adam, do you want to add anything with Shelby? Yeah. So, I mean, all, all good points. Um, I don't disagree with any of them. The tough part about racism is it's relative, um, like many things, but we're talking about racism. So I'm from Georgia. Um, there's different racism in Georgia than there is in Boston than there is in the Midwest than there is in California. So different things. But what I've, um, I sit on an inclusion and diversity board for the Navy. Um, and, you know, it's been about six months. And I think uh, if I, if I might add just to kind of um, not avoid the rabbit hole, but to shed some light, it's not racism. That's the problem. It's colorism. I'm not black. It's not a race. And Bridget is not white. Bridget, what is your, what's your ethnicity? Irish, Irish yeah. right? And you married an Irish guy mm-hmm. who is also half Nicaraguan, but his last <laughs> name is Full Boyle. His nose, his nose shows it. Right? So if anybody didn't know, you know, Johnny's Irish, right? <laughs> um, but ethnicity is not color. Um, and there are scars. And to Kenzie's point, sy- systemic racism is a tough a tough nut to crack she is you're exactly right kenzie and the the only issue is that we have more to discover about what it means to all of us Mm. because it depends on your point of view Mm -hmm. right Um, right you know there are no laws but perception is reality so you know i'm not going to go through the list of things i've been through that i know if i was white wouldn't have happened to me but wow you know that's the reality so there don't need to be laws Mm -hmm. for it to be systemic but I also don't argue against the definition, as you put it. You're not wrong. Um, I hope that makes sense, right? There are two discussions. There's the, to, um, to Shelby's point, there's the implicit discussion and the explicit discussion. So mm. the hardest thing we have to grapple with is that we haven't even gotten to racism yet. We haven't even gotten to it. We're still on colorism. Uh, there were more African-Americans serving on Capitol Hill in, during Reconstruction than proportionally than there are today. Jim Crow issued in or ushered in colorism, literally signs that defined me as a colored person. There were colored and non-colored people. It reduced race to two colors and the irony, and I said this is a joke, but you know it's 51% uh, serious and 49% facetious. Black and white aren't colors. They're not on the color palette. So the irony, the tragic or beautiful irony of all of this is that they're not actually colors. Mm-hmm. They're shades, right? We're not even celebrating or condemning our colors. We are literally stuck on the shades on the opposite end outside of the spectrum. And that's all mm-hmm. thanks to Jim Crow. So once we grow out of colorism, to y'all's point, we can focus on, for example, the president's, the president's pure rhetoric. And we can critique him on that and love him through it, right? Or any person but calling him a racist from my position would be a stretch. I know what a racist looks like. A racist is a person who stands up and they would never, ever, ever in a situation even allude to the fact that they are comfortable with someone of another race being in a position of power. Mm -hmm. So if we do reduce it to the president, um, not saying that he doesn't have tendencies, pop potentially, I don't know. I'm not around and it is politics, right? But 
I do agree that the word has been watered down. Uh, A couple points. First, um, Mackenzie, to your point that there's no laws that say, well, if you're black or if you're white or if we're this or that. I mean, technically, no, you're right. There are no laws that exist like that. However, the way that some criminal laws are structured, okay, it more um, harshly targets Black people and Black communities and other um, minority communities. For example, um, in the criminal codes, crack cocaine that has more of an affiliation with minority use has a much harsher penalty in prison time than powder cocaine that is more frequently associated with white people using it. It's the same substance. It's used two different ways. One is associated more with one demographic of people, one with another, and they hold two very different sentencing schemes. Um, So that's kind of the thing that I mean by systemic racism is it's not always in your face. It can be sneaky. Um, And those are things that Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have known if I hadn't just paid a bunch of money to go to law school. And I was going to say one really interesting thing that I've been doing a lot of research on is um, after the Civil War, um, you know, the technically who we call the Republicans now are the ones who were fighting to free the slaves. And so it's really interesting to go back in our history and to see how the parties don't even like like you said in the beginning, Shelby, how I can't really register as a Democrat because I don't fully align. I feel that way as a Republican, like I don't fully align with with everything um, that we're seeing um, with the Republican Party. But does it most closely define my um, non-negotiables? Yes. But looking back in our nation's history, it's so interesting to me to research and read how the one part of the systemic racism argument that I agree with is a lot of times race was used for political gain. So when a president was running, they would say like, um, you know, I'm going to try to um, dismantle, you know, whatever, whatever hard thing that um, the black community was going through at that time and thus get the black vote. But my point in saying that is that if you go back to the roots of the parties, um, the generalization that it, that is now is that oh anyone who is a semblance of a racist is must be a conservative and we we have to admit to ourselves that 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 is out there there's a thought out there you might not think it and other people you know might not think it but there are folks that do um, kind of like Adam said um, make a hasty generalization that and that's such a serious thing to make a generalization on. Um, because certainly we are not racist. So um, I think that it is, it, it's important to be careful with those words. I think we do need to be very careful and have these great debates that we're having because then we realize, oh, we all want the same thing, you know? And, and there is parts of systemic racism that I do think are real. Like for example, Planned Parenthood clinics are all put in poor um, minority communities that we have to agree that that is a level of systemic racism. Why would you put that in walking distance to a ghetto? I mean, really, like, let's ask ourselves, why isn't that next to the nicest neighborhood, you know, in Charlotte or something? Why And why do the white women have to go to that area of town well, to get their abortion? I mean, you know what I mean? So it's like, when we, we look at that, parenthood, um, we have to ask ourselves. Of healthcare, affordable healthcare for women, 
So, I mean, the idea that they are in lower income areas is not surprising because that's the demographic that it's designed to serve is, or they're near college campuses for people who don't have insurance. Um, because a lot of people are uninsured in this country and they're able to get pap smears, to get annual physicals, to get um, birth control, to get mammograms. A lot of services are provided at Planned Parenthood. And to your point, well, you know, why do white women have to go somewhere else? Well, white women don't have to go somewhere else. They go to their OBGYN and it's performed there. We but- have to stop there because Planned Parenthood, like, their greatest, greatest source of revenue, and everybody knows this, mm-hmm. is abortion. And yeah, like I do think, something percent. I, I think. do think, yes. And I think it's like, it's like McDonald's and French fries. Without abortion, Planned Parenthood will literally go bankrupt. Like if, if McDonald's does not have French fries, they, McDonald's is not McDonald's. And so I think I, maybe they do have other services. I'm sure they do, but they are known for abortion and, and that's how they make their money. So for me, we got, we got to defund that. My mom's an OBGYN. She's a black woman. She voted for Trump twice. And um, her uh, her main stance, I, I'm, I'm going to hopefully I don't misquote her, but the main stance is also pro is the pro-life discussion. Um, and, you know, she doesn't overlook the president's rhetoric, but that's a big deal for her. And um, she was practicing when, you know, Roe v. Wade started. She was um, at Grady Hospital in Atlanta, which is where most of the trauma patients go for anything. They had an entire floor, and it's a massive hospital um, in the 80s for abortions, for women coming in who had mostly, um, you know, tried to perform abortions on themselves or went to places, uh, you know, where they couldn't get uh, professional help. So long story short, um, she's never believed, and, you know, this is just a conversation with her son over time, that... Um, we should control what people do, but if it was if it was her world, she would get rid of it. But as a follower of Christ, it's not. And I think I was so excited that Bridget allowed me to come into this discussion because we are living in the gray area. It's not our world. It's God's world. And living and navigating through that gray area, understanding that we would like it to be black and white and that we know what the truth is, is, is a little bit different than actually having the control that the Lord has. He has the control to pick the black and the white, but living in it is different. So an OBGYN practicing for 35 years, she just retired two two weeks ago, and she voted for pro-life. In her time for 35 years, she viscerally disagrees with the idea of abortion. It's an interesting place to practice and to live, right? And she prayed the almost the entire time as a physician. Um, and she just... You know, as she got closer to retirement, um, she's no longer obligated to advocate for women who cannot, um, you know, basically take care of themselves in those situations. Uh, My mom told me when I was little that she delivered a a nine-year-old. So, you know, do the math, right? What would you do, right? If if you knew that, let's say that was a healthy delivery, that that nine-year-old would die unless you completed an abortion. What do you do? They were violated um, with probably the only thing worse than this discussion itself is, um, you know, child molestation, right? In this, in this realm of discussion. I mean, those are tough decisions. All you can do is pray. Um, And God did 
uh, you know, he does tell us to follow the law to a certain degree and to discern and follow the spirit, but that's tough. And so I think that shaped her decision-making and all I can do is listen and try to internalize it. I'm not a woman, obviously, so that's never going to be my, my decision or my choice. So I'm just watching and wondering how thick is that gray area compared to the black and the white? And so I just, I was saying, I really appreciated Bridget letting me come in because I was interested to hear, I knew we would get to this, um, you know, more details on, on how you all navigate that gray area. I'll stop there. Wow. Wow. That's awesome. I remember, I have to throw in another Adam story because um, I will never forget this because it's like ingrained in my brain that, you know, Adam is like a second dad to my kids. He's been over at our house for like the past five years and we've moved (laughs) duty stations with Adam. Like he's seen us become parents. And I think it was when I was pregnant with Colby and I would text his mom like questions when I was pregnant, like, Hey, can I have a glass of wine? All this stuff. And somehow we got, she said, have three. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, she she was like, Oh, it's better to have more. She was like, than to have the stress. Like she's like, stress (laughs) is bad for the baby. But, um, but I will never forget Adam telling me that his mom was an OBGYN and had to do some sort of, I don't know, like health project with a placenta. And he, she sent him out to the garage to stir the placenta. How old were you? Like fifth grade he had to go out to the garage and stir a placenta in his garage and I just remember like I'll always think of like young Adam like stirring a placenta but um but to his point that like um I'm sure OBGYNs especially ones who have practiced for so many years have seen so many crazy situations and women in really hard places. And I think the common ground that all four of us have is that we want good for people. Like I do believe that of all of us. Um, And Ken's and I believe that abortion um, ultimately isn't the good for, for that individual. But at the end of the day, I think we have to foster these conversations to finally get to the root of truth eventually. What is that truth? Well, the description of, you know, that nine-year-old that Adam just described, like, that is a horrific situation. And so, um, and, you know, I've had friends who've had abortions. I know people, I, I know family members who have been um, in the position to potentially have an abortion. Um, I, I know people all across the spectrum who have been in crisis pregnancy situations. Um, personally, to me, I feel like crisis pregnancy is a trauma. And then when you add abortion to that, it's another trauma. That's that's how I feel based on stories that I have heard and people that I know who have, you know, experienced that. But um, but again, I think that all of this sharing that we're doing is, is helping. I think. Um, so yeah, thank I you guys. I love that line, Bridge. The double trauma. That's that really opened my eyes. I, I learned that like this only this last year because I've always been super pro life and um, completely agree across the spectrum. I mean. Shelby is aware of my sibling who is an addict and had to give a baby up for adoption this year. And I just think that there's always an option and you always should choose life because if you, if you don't choose life, then it's a choice for death. And not only is it so daunting and horrible for the mother because of the situation, but then there's no hope afterwards. There's no light. There's no life. So that's, I completely agree. 
um, really quickly to jump in before we move on from this topic, which is a heavy topic. Um, like, what is something that you guys feel like pro-lifers are either saying wrong or could say better or could introduce this really tough conversation? How, basically, what could we do better in order to, um, to reach hearts? Because um, like Adam's pointed out before, like a lot of times it can come off as an aggression and that's absolutely not where our heart is. So we would love to know from you guys, like, um, you know, how could we live in this gray that Adam's talking about gracefully, but still remain true to how we feel? Um, I think it's, um, it's always important to remain true to yourself and to live your life in a way that aligns with your beliefs and your faith. It's the most important thing, right? Because that's what's going to give you peace um, at the end of the day. And I think in a lot of conversations that I have had with people who identify as being pro-life is there's a sense of missing compassion um, and empathy for the situation and what the woman is going through in that moment for her to be in the position to um, either one, be making that choice or two, um, you know, and I, I know you raised this as an issue as a reason why you wouldn't vote for Joe Biden is the idea of quote unquote late term abortions and um, abortions. And I know you're going to vehemently disagree with me on this, but they are, they are healthcare um, for people. And I think when we look at situations, especially in late term abortions, very much those babies were wanted and something horrible has happened. And um, whether it was like a placental abruption or something like that, and the doctor is making a clinical decision to where um, there's absence of fetal viability or life and they're presented with the opportunity to save the mother. You know, that is very common in what we see as quote-unquote late-term abortions. So I think having compassion and empathy for all people who are in these positions, but especially in having compassion, compassion and empathy for people who are faced with an impossible decision and that they're also heartbroken about because they very much wanted and planned and desired that child is something that I think is missing and that we don't always think about when we talk about abortion. I agree with you, Shelby, that there needs to be more compassion um, for the mother before and after, especially after. And Bridget actually pointed out a couple of different, um, I guess, uh, nonprofits that help the, the mother or the woman who chose abortion, because I still love the mother by the way, and you're not, not a mother just because you abort your baby. You're, st you are still a mother. And so we need to love that woman, um, through her abortion and because it's going to be traumatic. So I, I agree with that, but I also have heard and read and studied that abortion is actually never medically necessary. I will find multiple articles and send it to you because we can keep this open. But yeah, what about let's you? keep, let's keep it open. Cause I found some that say 
some different. So it's okay yeah. to yeah. put things on pause and for both of us to do more research. Totally. So I'll, I'll jump in as um, the uh, the man here with absolutely no stake in this or experience or process. <laughs> uh, no, no, no. I'm talking about physical process of abortion and birth. I hope I don't have a stake in that. I'm just saying you could be in a position where <laughs> I could be standing next to the person going to it. <laughs> um, yeah, but I mean, let's let's make a scenario. Johnny always hates when I do this, but I don't know if you hate it. But let's <laughs> let's let's say that um, we lack enough women. There's I'm sure there's movies out there because there's some let's say a disease right that is is plaguing women's reproductive systems and is making them basically unable to have children. Uh, once those numbers start declining, we're going to have a different discussion about abortions. So this is, it is a relative discussion, right? Mm. In the way that we value the most important power that we have collectively as a race is to reproduce. It is above mm. everything else. Mm-hmm. And the fact that we can do it on our own and choose, most people can choose to do it, is, is universally a, a constant blessing mm-hmm. beyond comprehension to create life, right? And there are just so many of us right now, to y'all's points, the conversation has moved from value and love and celebration to, well, I mean, I think I'm going to get an abortion. That's, that's insane, right? So the, the larger discussion needs to be about, you know, how do we keep ourselves in the mindset, whether there are, and this sounds really blunt, available women, many available women to choose to have babies. How do you keep yourself in the mindset that that could change tomorrow with the wrong circumstances at the right, at the rights, the, the wrong circumstances at the wrong time. And you could be looking at a situation where you're like, Oh wow, only women can make more of us. And we are now in jeopardy and might lose that ability. I, I mean, it would okay. change our minds so quickly. So um, I hope that makes sense. That's that's kind of what I think about sometimes when I'm off wondering what you all think well, about, right? Well, thing before we move on, um, Kenzie and I have talked about this before, about how um, society, like, views motherhood. And mm-hmm. I think a big part, right, in ultimately coming, you know, to a side where we're seeing progress is providing people with a society that does value life, right? That values the environment around it, that values education, that has mm-hmm. affordable housing, that has health care. Um, mm-hmm. So when this child is born and comes into the world, that it has this beautiful, thriving opportunity to live a full life. Mm-hmm. And I, that's not the society we live in currently, you know, and a lot of people that's true. are I'll really that. struggling. And I think it's very, especially now. And I think the thought of having to care and provide for this thing that you love so much that you made with zero support in some cases is too much for people to comprehend. So I think, I mean, this is a really big issue. And sometimes I think it's just polarized and is it right or is it wrong? And there's a lot of things that play into Mm -hmm. it, right? Like what type of society do we, do we live in a society that values life? Do we live in a society Mm -hmm. where people have the resources 
to be like, hell yes, I'm going to, this baby was not planned, but I have healthcare. I have a place to live. I'm going to be able to have um, maternity leave from my job, all of these things. So I think we need to start as a society, one, just valuing life as it is right now and doing better so that when we bring new life into this world, it's not just survival, but it's the opportunity to thrive and have a meaningful life. Yeah. Well, I have two kids. I'll just quickly say it's always survival. <laughs> That's for all I'll say. That's true. <laughs> Amen. I'll say I come over a question got a little off. My blunt answer when I said it would be boring to the original question is if seven, if one person voted for President Trump and we, we follow Christ, you love that person. And back to Shelby's point, if we're going to make that world, it has to start with the adults actually loving each other. Yeah. You're going to bring a child into a world where the adults viscerally and absolutely fight because of reasons that they can't or they perceive they can't overcome as simple as who you voted for. Mm-hmm. It's not like when you voted, you got a dagger and stabbed the person on the other side next to you. You just voted. Right. Um, so if, if one person voted for President Trump, even if it was a landslide, we don't we don't lock them up in the basement and or put them in a in a in a zoo and study them. We say okay, or make a list like AOC. Right. <laughs> so, so I mean, who are we? And what are we? Are we followers of Christ? Are we people who love people? Are we followers of any type of teachings, uh, implicit or explicit, that teach love and understanding? Or are we a bunch of barbarians who are reduced down to the the, the ballot choice? That we- I love that you said that, Adam. That you are so on it and that's what I love about Shelby too Shelby reached out to me like three weeks ago and acknowledged how busy I am said I know you're busy because I have two barbarians myself but I wanted to see (laughs) if you'd be open to a monthly or bi-monthly book exchange and zoom and coffee I'm reading what she said um, for some healthy discussion between ourselves as whom or whoever wants to join I and she says this I quote Shelby I think as students of life, we all have more to learn and more love to give. That was so awesome to read. That's awesome. So, and you also said, I also believe we all have more in common than we currently feel. And I think it's easy to feel that we're living in this day and age where we can't speak truth or we can't say what's on our hearts or we can't post Mm -hmm. a picture of us in our new um, I almost said AOC shirt bridge, <laughs> ACB shirt. Um, and I, and I just love you both um, for being so genuine and truly Absolutely. listening and wanting that life that you're right, Shelby, you're right, Adam. We all want that. We, I think, you know, we all want goodness and truth. So I think, I think Shelby hit it on the, hit the nail on the head when she said, um, you know, what kind of culture do we have? Do we have a culture of life? And I think the answer is no. And and we are going to have to figure out how both sides can come together to um, empower women, to support women in tough situations, to love women through hard situations and, you know, mistakes that they have made and to build them back up and that men need to be men and they need to stand by women in tough situations. It's like, it's such a complex layered um complexity it's really not just the woman's choice it's it's also it takes two to tango you know so where are these men you know like we need both we need both for it to be a healthy society um and 
I always think though about what you've said, Shelby, about how like are the women the ones that are being shown the least compassion in the pro-life movement? Because a lot of times we focus on the child. We focus on that baby in the abortion. But I think what we could work on is bringing that woman into the conversation more, elevating her. How can we support her? And how can we help her through this hard situation? And I, you know, I work for a diocese. We have so many programs for these women, but are we doing a good enough job pushing those out there so everybody knows that they're available? And I think the answer to that is no. I don't think that we are doing um, as much as we could. And so I, I think like pushing for that culture of life, pushing for friendships where we can have these discussions is so important because every woman's situation is so different. I mean, even when I found out that I was pregnant with my second, it was two months after I had just had a baby and it was a traumatic birth experience. I had to have an emergency C-section. So even in marriage, you can find yourself. I mean, I won't say grace was a crisis pregnancy, but in my own little world, it was a mini crisis because I had just had a very, very hard experience. Um, But what I always share with people is, although we did not plan her, she is like, and this is not just some cheesy thing I'm saying, like, I can't imagine our family without her. I mean, she just, I mean, Adam's nodding here because he knows he sees it. Like Colby is this wild fire child who just bolts through your life. And Grace is truly her name. Like she is Grace and she, she is the comedic relief we need in this family. And she's, she's everything. And her birth experience really redeemed my first birth experience, which was so horrible. Um, And so I think a lot of times, too, we have to, you know, kind of share these stories to let women know, um, don't make a fear based decision, you know. So um, that's, that's kind of my thoughts on it. But I I think, um, I just am so grateful that you guys were willing to come on and share all of this, because what a what an awesome experience. I don't know, I I don't think we could have picked two more um, generous friends to come on you know, willing to listen and stuff. So thank you. Guys. I agree. I feel like we could have multiple of these too. So maybe this is just part <laughs> one of many. I don't know. Shelby, I feel like totally. you have more to say. I definitely do. Bridge for sure does. Adam, I know that you're okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I appreciate that you guys were very honest. And, um, you know, I hope that you felt the same of us and we just really appreciate it because I think people, we need to have these conversations more and they aren't happening as much as they should. So thank you so much guys for coming on. Yeah, of course. Thank you. Thank you guys so much. Thanks for listening to Unraveled Podcast. To stay a part of the conversation, follow us on Instagram at Unraveled Podcast or on Spotify at The Unraveled Podcast. Thanks for listening.